Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week, and we hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch The Bridge Builder each week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station, or if you miss an episode, catch us on your favorite podcast app. In today's episode, we're talking about the need for the virtue of prudence as it relates to COVID-19 and decisions to reopen businesses, churches, schools, and really all aspects of life, as we used to know it, B.C., before covid In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about recent protests intentionally damaging monuments across the nation, including those of Catholic saints. And stick around for our bricklayer segment. We're talking about St. Kateri Tekakwitha, patroness of integral ecology, and especially a great symbol of unity between our indigenous population and the Anglo community. We're now joined on the line by Dr. David Cloutier. He's Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. Listeners may recall Dr. Cloutier was on the program with us at the end of last year to talk about uh, structures of sin. He's the author of a very fine book called The Vice of Luxury, and we decided to invite Dr. Cloutier back on the show because he had a very fine article in Commonweal talking about what the experts can and can't tell us about these important public health decisions. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cloutier. It's good to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Hope you're enjoying the Minnesota summer. We're trying to. They just opened up youth baseball, so finally summer can truly begin in earnest. So we're looking, Uh, we're very much looking forward to that. (laughs) In your article, What the Experts Can't Tell Us, you note that, first of all, the pandemic is a natural and amoral phenomenon, but the response has to be a moral one. What do you mean by that? Our choices as human beings aren't determined by natural phenomena. The virus will be a virus, but the choices that we make, especially the choices that we make in common, that is political choices that we make for a society, aren't choices that are determined by the virus. Science can tell us things about how the virus spreads, for example, or what what we can do to develop a vaccine for, for a virus. But they can't tell us exactly what we should do in response to the virus, how we should rearrange things in our society. That's a moral decision that needs to be guided by the common good. We often hear that we need to trust the science and the experts, and and you argue that is insufficient when answering the question of what should we do. Why is the data not sufficient in itself? Well, there's there's two key reasons. One, One is in this situation in particular, the data are not absolutely clear in giving us a course of action uh, for a, a, a routine medical procedure, for example. We have great amounts of data, and so the doctor can tell you with a very high degree of certainty, yes, you should have this procedure or else such and such will happen. But we already know from the past few months that there are many things that we have to learn about virus transmission, and those are things that we are learning on the fly and and making adjustments to on the fly. So we can sometimes overestimate what science is, is even able to tell us. But then even when science is able to tell us a great deal, that doesn't mean that we are absolved from certain kinds of choices. So, for example, science can tell us that if we drive vehicles 
at relatively high speeds, we know that there will be situations where the the vehicles will malfunction or the human operators will malfunction and damage will be done to property and and even to lives, right? Um, That that doesn't determine whether we drive or not. (laughs) Um, It may lead us to drive in certain ways and not in other ways. It may lead us to make certain rules about driving, but it doesn't mean, oh, cars kill people, so we won't drive, right? That, Mm -hmm. that, (laughs) there's clearly reasoning that, that is involved in, in making the choices about how to drive. You have to make some sort of value judgments and questions about what's good and what ought we to do and how should we act based on some idea of the good or what serves human beings well, or some, some sort of normative standard. Yeah. And, and against the background of that in, in light of disease or any kind of health issue, we are mortal creatures at the end of the day. And that is not to trivialize death. I think we all recognize that trivializing death is not something that we would want to do, but we don't live as creatures who can protect ourselves in an absolute fashion from sickness and death. Instead, we have to look at the data and then make reasonable decisions about risk how to take appropriate risks as opposed to inappropriate ones. The U.S. is a nation, it is said, that there are only two answers to every question. So the way this debate's been framed up is you're either pro-science and pro-public health or against science and in favor of reckless wanton death and killing. When we show and talk about the limits of science uh, in our decision-making, of course, the, the natural inclination for many people is to say, well, you're against science. So can you clarify for us what role the science and data should play? How, does the, how should they inform our judgments and our practical reasoning? Jason, you mentioned at the beginning the virtue of prudence, one of the cla- classic cardinal virtues in the, in the Catholic moral tradition. Prudence involves experience. Broadly speaking, the kind of experience that makes for a person who has the virtue of prudence is someone who has the ability to see the course of events with more subtlety and care than other people do. So an example might be that a wise baseball player, for example, can tell you things about what a pitcher is going to do, not with absolute certainty, but certainly with more certainty than I can tell you. Right? So the, the person has prudence as a batter simply because they have the experience of how the baseball game proceeds, what kinds of choices pitchers might, might make. Th- that is somewhat analogous to the role that science, broadly speaking, plays. It's a, a discipline where we observe things about the world, and experts can tell us things about not only the way the world is working, but what might happen. That is, they can make predictions about what might happen based on the knowledge. And those predictions are better than um, people who have no experience. But at the same time, they cannot, with absolute certainty, predict every future action, and certainly not on the scale that we, we sometimes are currently discussing. So at the beginning of the coronavirus, we received many very, very dire reports about the death toll um, that might be associated with the virus. And the worst 
has not occurred, and undoubtedly that's partly because of the actions that we have taken, but it's also because we had very little data at the beginning. And so we need to be realistic about needing data, but also recognizing the limitations of the data. Why is it the case that, based on your good point and important point about experience, that it seems that experience in a culture that supposedly values science and data, experience still really isn't guiding the viewpoints on the the response to the virus? And what I mean by that is that even as the data continues to unfold, as we learn more, people still seem stuck in the original grooves of how they responded this to a, in a political and ideological way and less in a scientific way. What do you make of that? For all the focus on science, people on both sides seem to still be responding in an ideological way. Well, I think, as you mentioned, there, there is a problem in our culture. We usually put the label of polarization on the problem. There, there is a way in which, because we have two dominant political parties, often in a 50-50 kind of situation, that, that major public issues are, are sharply polarized. That is, there are people on both sides of the divide who are interested in framing issues in a way that makes you think the other people are wrong, just wrong, <laughs> and that, they are, that their side is right. That, that kind of clarity <laughs> helps push people in one, one direction or the other. So I, I think that's, um, that's part of the problem. And then I also think that part of the problem is that most of us do not have any experience of public health emergencies as a society. So we really are dealing with something, a, a kind of social problem that we haven't dealt with in several generations in our society. And so I I think people are not well prepared as political leaders or as ordinary citizens to um, negotiate the complexities of these issues. To what degree do you think people really trust science and the experts or are science and the experts really a a convenient ideological tool uh, and a veneer to cover over more ideologically rooted arguments? Um, I, I think there's some of that. One doesn't want to go too far in the anti-science direction or the idea that there's, there's nothing that experts can tell us and we can just use some kind of common sense um, to, to figure out how to negotiate the world. That, that's, that seems to me it's obviously not the case. But um, certainly it's the case that, that um, experts are deployed for ideological reasons. So I don't know what the situation exactly is in Minnesota, but it's certainly the case here in D.C. that there has now become this obsession with certain metrics that somehow we can determine in some precise way which businesses can open and what capacity those businesses should have simply by looking at a set of metrics, right? <laughs> that are, you know, put on a website every day. And, and that, that's a, um, a terrible oversimplification of, of the problem. And the reality is that the, the metrics end up manipulated. The metrics are, are clearly manipulated in order to achieve certain kinds of outcomes. 
I think that experience is certainly consistent with what we've seen here, where strategies around reopening haven't met the common sense standard, even though they were supposedly rooted in science. With with the experts seemingly changing the goalposts and and uh, you know shifting gears about what constitutes the goals in terms of responding to this pandemic, uh, why is it the case that we still trust the experts to the extent that we do? That is a challenging question, Jason. Um, it, it's in part because the experts occupy positions of power. I think it, it is somewhat clear now, at this point, a couple months into the emergency, that many people are not trusting the experts. They are <laughs> they are trying to go on with their lives in in various ways. They're unwilling to to follow all of the careful guidelines. However, they often have serious issues at stake. So, for example, I, we're dealing with uh, universities in the District of Columbia opening in the fall, and the reality is that our plans to reopen have to be approved by the D.C. government, because if, they, if we were to do things that were not approved by the D.C. Department of Health, then we would be open to lawsuits from students and parents. Right. So the, there's an underlying dynamic, I think, that even if we question the experts institutionally, I think we have to recognize that the experts occupy certain positions of power. And so you feel like you have to defer to them. But on an individual level, I, I'm sure you see this in Minnesota. We certainly even see it here in a, in a, in a more urban setting. People are making their own choices at this point in many cases, individual people. We certainly need experts and people who are knowledgeable in specific areas who've taken lots of time to study these matters and inform our judgments, and their judgments do matter. We should underscore that. But one wonders, given the point that you just made, whether or not there's over the overreach on the part of experts has actually undermined uh, the public health cause over the long term. Maybe one could call it a certain scientism or a, a over-reliance on certain data to the exclusion of other considerations has actually undermined the goals of long-term public health yeah. precisely because the experts in this case potentially overreach. What do you? What do you? What are your thoughts I, on that? I actually think part of the problem is that we are not we are not actually focusing well on the data that matters. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I I make the point in the Commonweal article that the the very large numbers of overall deaths from coronavirus has ha- have happened in long-term care facilities. The numbers are over 50% in many, ca- in many places. Um, and the, that, that problem seems to be very underreported. Um, there seems to be an anxiety that somehow anyone can die at any time from the coronavirus unless we take high levels of precaution. I think this is especially true because the science is very clear at this point that young people are not likely to get very sick from this virus. So uh, obviously they can be carriers of the virus to other people and, and those kinds of matters. But the reality is we should be taking measures that sort people's risk more intelligently based on the data. So the argument that I just made is, 
is a data-driven argument. <laughs> um, but the, the problem is that we're focused on overall data. Are the cases overall going up or down? We're not even asking the question sometimes about whether these cases are happening in people who are relatively going to get through the probabilities they're going to get through any kind of sickness. Instead, we're just focused on these overall numbers going up or down, which is not, it's not helpful. It's not even scientific, much less prudent. And that's a key point. I, I think you've hit it right on the head that even still, you can collect all sorts of data and, and throw a lot of numbers around, but you still have to make judgments about which data points matter when you're addressing the public health question, which is it uh, testing the number, how many tests are we conducted, how many people are infected, or is it how many ICU beds are being occupied, how many people mm-hmm. in long-term care are suffering, for example. So what you're highlighting in the in the article is an important point in the sense that it speaks to prudence, it speaks to the importance of practical wisdom, but you have to make distinctions that science can't make on its own about which data really matters and which one's important if you want to uphold the common good. So say a little bit about the connection between prudence and the common good. Well, ultimately, all of the virtues, when they're deployed in a political setting or in a social setting, if, if you want, right, in, in a society setting, are supposed to be aimed at the common good, according to to Catholic teaching. And it's first important to note that the common good is a set of conditions. It's not each individual person's good added up. And it's not like we, we reject the dignity of the human person either. That's why we always have to talk about the dignity of the human person when we talk about the common good. But we should recognize that the common good is something that we we share in common. So I think the crucial example for for people to think about is that we never closed the grocery stores. We never closed certain things that were deemed essential, even though we know with certainty that there would have been less spread of the coronavirus if we had just decided to shut down the grocery stores. Right. Certainly there would have been less spread among the essential workers who were at the grocery stores or at the meat packing plants, for example. So in that situation, politicians and others decided that it would not be prudent. It would not be for the common good to somehow shut down the entire food supply system for the United States, that it it would not actually be able to be sustained in any kind of way. And so even in that case, there was a decision not based on data, but rather based on prudence and the common good to say, hey, if we shut down the grocery stores, the situation would have been mass panic and hoarding, and we can imagine some of the problems. And that would not have served the common good. So so we should recognize from the beginning of this crisis that, in fact, the decisions have always been prudential and not just data-driven, and that the prudence have, has aimed at the common good. We, we've got to keep the grocery stores open or else, you know, society will implode. So uh, I think that, that that hopefully outlines the connection. That's, that's, and that's right, and that's what gave rise to the distinction between essential and non-essential activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, ju- a prudential judgment about that, which then right. and that which then exposed a particular worldview. One might say that went into some of that distinct one of those decisions, uh, which rankled obviously a lot of people of faith the wrong way. Because well, and and yes, I I agree. I actually think the I read an article at one point asking why liquor stores were deemed essential, 
but churches were, were not essential. In the reopening in Minnesota, obviously, you went through a situation where the authorities seemed to be discriminating, essentially, against religious gatherings. And underlying that was obviously an assumption that religious gatherings weren't very essential. <laughs> Correct. Um, uh, that they were they were kind of optional, and I've seen a considerable amount of conversation, touchy conversation, I understand, um, about the relationship between mass protest gatherings um, that rightly stand up against injustice. But the fact that these mass gatherings have materialized in a time when so many people, for example, can't even celebrate weddings and baptisms and funerals for their loved ones. And there's a kind of disconnect there um, about what's deemed essential and, and what is not, that we should all, especially as people of faith, ask questions about. When we got time for one final question, Dr. Cloutier, and I want to ask you about the importance of data as a way to avoid making moral judgments. And, and people like data they like numbers. They like bright line rules because it seems mm-hmm. to shield them from criticism, from having to make practical judgments in concrete situations. It seems we're all positivists now. Just tell me what to do. How, how do we recover a sense of the importance of moral reasoning and rightly put the data in the broader context of uh, practical reasoning and practical wisdom? Well, uh, as a last question, I'll say that there's there's no substitute for prudent leaders. That is, there's no substitute for the the actual character of the people who occupy elected office, Um, uh, because because they're people, right? They're not just structures. We we can put in structures in place, checks and balances, all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, political leaders are always people, (laughs) and as people, they will possess the virtues or, or, or lack the virtues uh, in, in particular ways. And there is no perfect leader, obviously, but we can be more sensitive to selecting leaders who are able to use data well, but then also recognize that simply referring to data is, is cowardly and insufficient and not even, not even very scientific. When, when making moral judgments. And, and so um, in relationship to that, as voters or as ordinary citizens, we should clearly explain to leaders that we want more than data, that we want more than numbers um, and trotting out scientific experts. We want good judgment for the good of all of us. At the end of the day, you can't escape the importance of character and good virtue. So, yes, Dr. Cloutier, uh, David Cloutier, thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Dr. Cloutier is the author of The Vice of Luxury, a very fine piece in Commonweal, What the Experts Can't Tell Us, and he's Associate Professor of Theology at Catholic University of America. Dr. Cloutier, thanks for your good work and for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you, Jason. Great to be with you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the mailbag portion of The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into that mailbag to see what questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag? Today, questions regarding the protests that we're seeing nationally, even globally, 
And during some of these protests, we're seeing that statues and monuments are being torn down and defaced. Outside the Capitol here in St. Paul, protesters tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus. In California, protesters tore down statues of St. Junipero Serra. So the question comes, how can Catholics respond? Is there a one-size-fits-all solution to this? Thanks for that question, Kit, and it's an important one. And and first of all, it's important to identify that our faith is not tied to any statue or monument or anything else, that those are uh, symbolic expressions of pride, of history, of culture, and they are important in that sense. They they express a community's values, uh, but that doesn't mean that every monument is created equal, that every monument should stay up. Catholic Church throughout its history of Christianizing cultures has cert- torn down pagan monuments and Christianized them or put up new ones in their place. St. Boniface chopped down the tree when visiting uh, and mission and evangelizing Germanic tribes. Uh, they held the tree sacred and he chopped that down. How many times did uh, if you go to Rome, you can see uh, obelisks that are are topped with crucifixes or crosses, for example. So th- th- changing monuments, rewriting history through the use of monuments is not a new thing in our culture. The question is, is what standard do we hold that those monuments to? Should that be done? Who's involved in that conversation? And I think that what's concerning, uh, regardless of your view on the particular monument that's being toppled, is are these being done in a way that involves the public that allows us to uh, work through history, to recognize the injustices, to to right the injustices that have been wrong, or is this a complete rewriting of history and, and doing so in a lawless way that doesn't reflect the input of the community? And we're seeing statues of saints being toppled, great figures in history like Columbus. Even Abraham Lincoln is not safe in the United States, despite his valiant effort to defeat slavery and prosecute the Civil War. Winston Churchill is being defaced in Britain, who fought the who fought the Nazis. Ulysses S. Grant uh, took on the KKK and battled Southern rebellion in the time of Reconstruction. So no one seems to be safe. The question is, is how is the what's process is being used or is this just being done in a lawless way? Here, I think it was done in a lawless way. And that's unacceptable. That requires, again, a community conversation about the particular item in question. It's public property. Uh, Lawless destruction of property, uh, public or private, is wrong. And we should be having uh, processes and transparent processes by which those statues are looked at and those statues are examined. And we can have a conversation that reconciles uh, challenges in history, uh, injustices that are done, and at the same time, you know, say what's what's really going on here. It looks like really this is an attempt to tear down Western civilization altogether. And so if that's the reality here with what's going on in, in the statues, then that needs to be reckoned with and we need to have a conversation about what's going, what's really going on that, what are the deeper issues that are guiding some of the vandalisms of these monuments. It's a, if there's a significant historic historical narrative that's in place about the illegitimacy of Western civilization, then that's one that needs to be had and uh, had very publicly. Um, we can't deny history, but we also should be careful about rewriting it and cutting ourselves off from our roots. Do we want revolution? Uh, and we're seeing the inklings of a cultural revolution today, or are we in need of reform? So uh, the church has always advocated for reform because it admits a form, a good standard that we should conform to. Uh, revolution is uh, simply a tearing down and cutting oneself off from the roots. It ends violently and often not very well. So these are important questions, and we need to think about that as we uh, look at how these monuments are being treated, what processes are in place, how does that f- 
the monuments discussion facilitate greater public conversation about real injustices and how we move forward as a community in solidarity together, not pitting one group against another. And I, so these monuments questions uh, are un, unpacking that for us and bringing those issues to light and need to be considered more deeply. Great. Thanks, Jason. And we have just another minute or two here before the end of the program. We always like to end with our bricklayer segment, helping people to lay the bricks that build the bridge between faith and politics. So what kind of practical takeaways do you have in this week's bricklayer segment? Well, it's a good segue to the Feast of St. Kateri Tekakwitha, July 14th, someone who did build a bridge between the new new communities of French and English uh, European settlers who came to the United States, to North America, and the indigenous population. She was a Mohawk Indian who was canonized by Pope Benedict on October 21st, 2012. She's the patroness of integral ecology, a beautiful saint and a beautiful witness to the faith, but also care for creation. So July 14th is her feast day, and during this time where we celebrate the fifth anniversary of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, it's an important way in which we can consider caring for our common home. And in Minnesota, we have a resource called Minnesota Our Common Home, where you can consider more deeply the implications of what it means to live in communion with integral ecology and live integral ecology in your own life. For more information about St. Kateri and opportunities for caring for our common home, for being a better steward of creation, visit the website of the St. Kateri Conservation Center, kateri.org, K-A. Teri.org. They have great resources on the life of St. Kateri, as well as more resources on ecology and even details on how to start a habitat or garden that can help foster God's creation and serve as a place of prayer and contemplation. Again, more information at kateri.org. That's all the time we have for today, but you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org. And remember to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference and for Kit Cross. Thanks for listening and have a great day.